Um, before I give the reading for today, let me just uh, start with a question. What, what one bit of sage wisdom, if you could grasp it like a one-liner, if you could really absorb it and take it in, would cause you to flourish for the rest of your life? One bit of sage wisdom, what would that be? If you, if you could hear it and if you could sort of absorb it and you could grasp it and you could fully understand it, what would need to be said to you in order that the rest of your days on this planet would, be, would just blossom with goodness? Rest more, live a little more, life short. Which bit of sage wisdom uh, would it be? As, as you're thinking about that question, I'm going to ask, I'm going to read, take the reading again. I'm going to ask you to, we've been looking at these, this series in 1 Samuel. We've been looking at these kingdom stories, these stories of Saul, these stories we've thought about the idea of these like Viking-like stories, these battles, these continuous battles. We're going to look again at one of these stories. I'm going to ask you at the start um, from the beginning to remember that this is all God's God breathed. This is, as we sort of read through uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, we remember that it's all God-breathed and it's all useful. This stuff written down, these stories, we can understand them as God breathing them out to equip us, I think this is what the verse says, to equip us and make us righteous. And I believe that this story, as we, if we give it its place, if we can enter into it again and see what God's saying to us through it, we'll do that. They'll be useful to us and they'll equip us and cause us to flourish. So just read with me um, from the text as it comes up. This is, this is the great story of King Saul. It's chapter 11 and verse 1. Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, have got any young'uns in? Listen to this. This is, a, this is a brutal bit of a story. Hang on, it's good stuff but hang on to this. I think, I think we're all good age limit-wise. Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. I tried to say that bit with a bit of dramatic effect. The elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. And when the messengers came to Gabir of Saul and reported these terms to the people, I guess they went back um, to where most of the people lived in the majority populated part of Israel. And when they reported the terms, they all wept aloud. Just then, Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen, and he asked, What is wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. Hang on to this. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent them, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came together as one. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, 
Bezek, perhaps, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, and those of Judah, 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we will surrender to you, and you can do to us whatever you like. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Saul is confirmed as king. Verse 12, then the people said to Samuel, who was it that asked? And this is referring back to a little bit in chapter 10. Who was it that asked? Shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we can put them to death. But Saul said, no one will be put to death today. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. And you're thinking, great. Another weird, distant, slightly crackers, quite violent, I'm glad my kids are out, kind of a story. I want you to, even though we are there, all this is God-breathed, is my conviction. Imagine God just breathing that out for us to be built up, for us to understand who God is. So I want you to stay. I want you to stay as, as visually as it is possible without the use of some sort of film or something like that in this world, imagining kingdoms and Vikings. And imagining, and I think this is the mindset that you've got to get into, there is the sense with this text that an army can just this fear in this text, there's a sense that an army can just rock up at any moment. I did a bit of math looking at the maps. I love a map, me. love a little look at a Bible map. If you're ever really bored when I'm preaching, bring your Bible along, have a little gaze at the map. It's about 20 miles from where the Ammonites would have been camped to where the Israelites were going to be camped. It's a little bit like the city of York getting really hacked off with the good people of Castleford and Ponty, not having any cars and rocking up and the river Calder or something like that one day. And they get there, let me just read it out to you, Nahesh the Ammonite went up, besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. Make a treaty. Make a treaty so that we're not going to destroy you. And the treaty was, we want to gouge out all of your right eyes. Now, I can't, just a lovely little exciting moment for somebody who reads the Bible all the time and has got to look into this. You can't pass that up without Googling. Is this, did this happen? Is this a real thing that actually happened? So I Googled it and you look into it and it didn't just happen there. It happened a lot in these days. There's lots of what will be quite messy um, evidence left behind to suggest that this was the case. There's lots of records that this was there. And what happened in the rest of the text? This struck fear 
into the lives of everybody else. Verses 2 to, two to 4, what happens in the rest of the story is the elders, I think very cleverly, say, give us seven days. They're like, let's see if anyone will come to rescue us. And they send foot messengers back. So you can imagine these terrified people running back on foot saying, over there, we've got seven days or they're going to rip our eyes out. And there's this idea at the start of this story of this like evil, monstrous empire coming in and using, I think, this is, I, think, I, I think this is the way that it would work, the idea of using not just the weapon of gouging the eye out, but this treaty would have been like the idea of fear, do you know when fear of what might happen becomes the weapon? And I don't, you know, we look into the distant past at this story, but I think if you could look across the world right now and see that this, in different areas, in different regions of the world, this is still a common thing. It's, a, it's just a time of absolute terror for Israel. There's these terrified messengers and these people going to bed at night wondering if the next day they're going to wake up and there's this ferocious army about to attack them, or even in the middle of the night might wipe through them. And they've got the imagery of the gouged eye in the back of their heads. But in the story, cometh, this is a real, cometh the hour, cometh the man. And with Saul, he was foolish and strong, so he didn't last long. He doesn't last long. It really is only an hour. But it's his moment. This is his moment. We know with the story of Saul... Remember a couple of weeks ago, the pitfalls of having a king. If, you, if you're going to have a king, he's going to tax you to, get, to death. If you neglect my sovereign rule and you choose a king, there's going to be consequences for that. We know that down the line, Saul's going to blow it. Maybe I don't know if you know, familiar with the story of Saul, but read on a few chapters. Saul's really going to blow it. He's going to ignore God. He's going to abuse his power and all of his strength. But in this moment, you see in the story, in this moment, he's God's man. He's listening to what God says. And his height and his power and his strength is all been used of God. Now listen to this for an awesome bit of military prowess and strategy. Verse 5 through to 9. So read along with me. Just then Saul was returning from the fields. Try and picture it as much as you can. Behind his oxen and he asked, in a very macho, it sounds to me kind of macho kind of way, what's wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Some reassurance, I think, comes from a guy who's got that attitude at the start. Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. And Saul heard the words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. I'll read this bit again, because it's worth just getting inside of it as far as you can. He took a pair of oxen, cut them to pieces, sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, just think about what is he doing with this. This is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. And then terror fell on everyone, and they come out as one. And then Saul musters them, gathers them all together. He ends up getting, this is verse 8, 300,000 and 330,000. And he says to them, we're going to come and we're going to rescue you. And they are absolutely elated and ecstatic about this. This is, I tried to imagine this, I, I love these kind of stories. And I imagined two legends sort of in one. This is, as I see it, imagine if you could, if you can, and go with me on this, Winston Churchill and Thor, if they were to merge 
It's not an easy coming together, is it? But if you could have the oratory skills of Winston Churchill and the military prowess of somebody like that, and for want of a better expression, the body and the macho-ness of Thor, then that is what you have got in this picture. I can't read verse... Yeah, I can't read verse 5 as I imagine verse 5. It's an awesome sight. King Saul. He's King Saul. Where is he? He's not in his palace. I'm ready to take against royalty. when I, you, know, you know, you see him all with his, all his privilege. Where is he? He's, in the, he's on the farm. He's plowing his oxen. How awesome is that? I cannot imagine him with his shirt on. I'm sure that the author is getting us to think of the, the most tallest, handsomest, most macho guy in this moment. You've got Thor there, like saying, what's everyone crying about? You know, almost ready. I don't know what weapon he's going to have in his hand, but you've got that. But then, not only have you got that, the tall guy who's going to save the day in the moment, you've also got the military tactician. Do you see what he's saying to the people? It's just like an amazing speech. What he says in a nutshell, he says, and it's quite gruelish uh, as, as we think about it, you know, cutting up the oxen and sending it around. But what he's saying is, it's not, it's not a threat to them as such. He's saying... If we all don't fight, these are all farmers, remember? If we all don't fight, then none of us are going to get to work. It's like really stirring Churchillian stuff. If we don't fight now, then we're going to be next. And what happens? Verse 10 and 11. Tomorrow we're going to surrender to you. You can do it. Just whatever you want. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they break into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. They crush the Ammonites. Saul cometh the hour, cometh the man. Saul is the man in this moment. What is the meaning of this story? I think we see, so I don't know if we can have these verses up. I think we see, we get a sense of what the meaning is in verses 12 through to 14. The first thing I, I think we see, so I think we've got to see there's a critical identity lesson that God's people are going to learn here through Saul. And it's one that's, that's critical for us to learn. Huge identity lesson that we've got to learn. I'm going to tell you about what that identity lesson is, and then I'm going to tell you why we don't learn it, why we struggle to learn it, and then I'm going to tell you why I think that we've got to learn it. So a critical identity lesson in these last couple of verses, why we really struggle to learn it, but why we've got to learn what it is. So the first identity lesson is, and I don't know if we've got the little subs uh, just to keep you mindful of it, and it's in verse 13. This is what Saul says. No one's going to be put to death today, for this is the day that the Lord has rescued Israel. He says, my take on it is that God has saved us today. This is the thing that we've got to learn. God is our rescuer and our victor in this moment. Ultimately, victory, ultimately in life, in our life, victory and rescue is the business of God. This is the huge, big, what I would describe as an identity lesson that we've got to learn. Ultimately, victory and rescue is of God. Saul and his people are there. Saul's tall. He's got his shirt off. He's He's dealing with it. He's in the middle. He's, he's coming in the middle of the night. He's rallying around the people. The people are inspired. The people are brave. The people are tooled up and kitted up, and they are physically responsible for all of this. And yet, this is a work of God. See in verse six. This is God's 
spirit that moved him and that stirred him up. This is a, if you're a Bible geek, this is quite an interesting bit. Occasionally we have these stories that are like, you call them chiasmus, a chiasmus. I don't know what you call it if you get a couple of them. Chiasmus is probably not that. Um, but the meaning of the story comes together in the middle of the text. It's the way that um, a lot of the Bible stories would have been chronicled and written down. So the important point is right in the middle. So we look for meaning in a lot of the stories that we read at the end, and we see, all right, the meaning, it comes together there. But in Bible stories, some of the time, the meaning's right in the middle. In this story, it's right in the middle, and it's in verse 6, and it says, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. This is God's work. It's God's business. It's about God's justice. It's about God's plans for his people. Ultimately, rescue and victory is of God. As Christians, if we are Christians, for those of us here who are Christians. We are people who are learning to acknowledge the victory and rescue of God in all of our lives. This is, what, this is what we are. This is what's coming. We are people who are learning this lesson that Saul learned over years. Ultimately, victory and rescue is of God. So when you get back in from work Monday night and you sit down around your dinner table, wherever you are, and you look at the meal that's in front of you, whether it's a microwave meal or whether it's a, you know, a well-thought-through big, big meal, whatever it is, you need to know this is God's provision. And you say to yourself, I've worked hard for this. I've gone to the supermarket to get this. Um, I've married the guy or the woman who can cook this for me. You need to know this is God's work. This is God's provision. So you might say, Grace. And this is the lesson that you learn over and over again. I've worked hard for this. I'm raking in the dollar to get to this. I've been mindful of my career to get to this. This is God's work. Ultimately, behind it, it's God's work. The slightly better person that you've become. I'm when I wrote this example of learning about what it's like to have God's influence in your life, I guess I was thinking of me, the slightly improved person that you've become after 20-odd years of Christianity, a good education, invested parents, loving wives, kids, all the rest of it. Hearing all this, and you, you, you feel like you've become this slightly better person, you want to pat yourself on the back, you're desperate to tell others about how to live their life. And yet you realize, if you're a Christian, if God's at work in your life, this is just a slow, laborious work of God's grace in you. God's patience. God's loving sanctification. The identity crisis that you've slipped into that you hope you might fix with a pay rise or a fling, a different relationship, or perhaps a few beers, you really begin to realize needs a much deeper rescue than that. Whatever the problem is, whatever's going on with you, it's really God's rescue that you need. And it's God's victory that will enable you. But... If you've got with me that far, get back to the battlefield. You're in the battlefield, I'm guessing, on Monday morning if you're a person of faith. Who can hear this? Who can actually hear that if you're a Christian? Who can deal with that? This struggle that you're in, this holiness wrestle that you're in, this life improvement thing that's going on with you, this committing to church, this trying to read your Bible. Somebody whispering in your ear from the platform, it's really not you. This is not your work. At the end of the day, this is God's story, God's work in you. Who can believe it? 
if you're somebody that's not a believer in God, how is this going to improve your opinion of him? Surely this just belittles who we can be and what we are. It reduces us to being less than human beings, doesn't it? If it's not really us. These are the mantras of the modern world, aren't they? We can achieve whatever we want. It's about us and it's about self-determination. Who can hear this? I want to leave you with two points. Two reasons that it's true and two reasons that we've got to learn it. So the second one is the world needs mercy to break the chains of un to break the chains of injustice the world needs mercy the world needs to see mercy in order to break the chains of injustice to break the chain and the cycles of injustice we are i couldn't think of a better word there must be many better words than this but we are as a human race we are stuck stuck as the word i've got in my notes we are stuck in a cycle of injustice Every unjust action, everything that is unjust that happens has its roots in, or at least the perception of, roots in a previous injustice, doesn't it? Every bully's been bullied. Every country that goes to war has got a, has got a backstory of why they are aggrieved. Every person that's stuck in poverty has got a reason that they're stuck in poverty. We've all got something that we can look back on and blame, to use the words of Paul Young, every generation blames the one before. We can all, we can all look back and say, this, this is why I am where I am. We've all got something to blame. And it just goes back, and it goes back, and it goes back, whether it's war, whether it's abuses, any kind of injustice you look at, there's always a, somebody to blame. There's always something to look back on. And you can take it back as far back as you want to go, to the origins of who we are, back to the ark, back to the apple, wherever you want to go. This means that it's not only behind us, but as we see history repeating itself, to use an Abilene, we, we know that it's in front of us as well. We're in the cycle of injustice. Tell me that I'm wrong. Tell me that, tell me that I've got it wrong. Tell me that you see it changing in the future. Or tell me that you see more wars and more injustices. This story, this distant story, from the Old Testament, glimpses the real, and I can't emphasize with this with enough excitement, glimpses the hope that we have. What I would describe as the only hope that the human race has. I think Paul used that language in the Q&A that we had the other week. The only hope, and increasingly as I see the cycles of injustice that we get in, I would say it's the only hope that we have. See in the story how the cycle of injustice gets broken into and see what this glimpses for us in the story of the Bible. Verses 12 and 13. The people then said to Samuel, who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we can put them to death. This was a previous, when Saul was coronated, there were two groups. There were people that supported him and the people that hated him. And the people that didn't go for him were trying to kill the people who supported him. But Saul said, no, no. No one's going to be put to death today. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. There's this cycle. You see it in the story? There's this possibility of this cycle of retribution, of bitterness and injustice, just carrying on, carry on, until, and get the story, get this moment, get, this, get where this is pointing, until the king 
gets the people to realize and act like it's God that gives the victory. When he gets them to realize, when he says, look, this is God who's done this. The injustice, do you see it stop? We can't go and kill these people. The unjust cycle is broken into. The people are realizing, even though they were there kitted up, tooled up, behind the guy with his shirt off and everything else, this is God's story. This is about God's motivation. It's about God's purposes. It's about the strength of God's arm. It's about God's Holy Spirit working in this guy and bringing us to this moment. It's about God. And under the magnitude of this, as they realized this, they looked across at these people that they wanted to kill and they saw the shallowness of their own motives and they said, who are we to do this? And what happened is, in this moment, they were humbled. And mercy was enacted in them. They acted with mercy because they saw who God was and they realized the hugeness of him and the significance of him and the insignificance of who they were. The extent to which your eyes are open to your own need correlates directly with how much you're able to see the need in others. We've had, um, had a few interesting visits in the CAF these last couple of weeks. Um, and I don't want to put you off the cafe. It's a great ministry of God's work. But two guys that have come in recently have both had heart attacks. I'm pretty sure it's nothing to do with us. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced it's nothing to do with us, but they've had heart attacks. But, but with both these characters, I didn't know anything about the heart attack. I just knew that they were there one week, and then they didn't come for a long time, and then they were back there again. Now, both these guys are lovely guys, and as is the way with sort of coffee ministry, there's just lots of chat, and there's loads of lovely chat. But one of the observations that I would make about these two lovely guys is their chat and their conversation after they've had this brush with death, after they've had somebody hold their beating heart in their hand. They felt, them, they felt the authority of somebody else, the greater thing. Changing conversation was just marked. It was incredible. It was beautifully humble. It was so aware of the wider world. It was loaded with compassion. Incredible to see. This is why I think the story of the cross is so critical. Because we can't all go about getting heart attacks to change our perspective on the world. I don't think that's a good way forward. The cross, I would say, is critical for the human race. It's critical that we get it. And it's critical because, because we're stuck because we're stuck in this endless cycle of bitterness and injustice. And God does something which says so clearly, I'm saving you. It's just me that's saving you. And he does it in such a way that we can't take any of the credit for it. And we can't add anything to it. All that we can do with this story is believe it. And then in this moment, as we see the vast love of God and the huge work that's done that we just accept. Mercy triumphs in all of us. Mercy triumphs over injustice. And it sparks up in our lives as we experience it. And it starts there 
on the cross. And it's the reason I would say the cross sticks out as the single most important story in human history because people need to see mercy. There's no other way this circle of injustice is going to be changed without the people seeing mercy and the good king gives us the mercy. The last point, the last story. Point number three. It's based on the verse 14. New beginnings are always possible. New beginnings are always possible. Verse 14 and 15. Samuel says to the people, come let's go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. Gilgal's significant. Just sounds like another town, doesn't it? If you dig around deeper into the story, Gilgal is where Joshua goes um, when he enters the promised land. It's the place of new opportunity. It's the place of new beginnings. It's no coincidence that Saul and Samuel take the people here. They're saying this is the chance for new beginnings. And there, they renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king. But not just made him king, they made him king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord And Saul and all the Israelites had a great celebration. Samuel says to them in this moment, right, now we've got the king that you asked for. Now we're going to do it right. We're going to to do this thing the right way. We're going to make Saul king in the presence of God. We're going to get him to govern in God's ways. We're going to say this is an important thing for us. And what happens in the story, and I love this, I think the, the storyteller just says, basically, we're going to go all in for a good time. We're going to celebrate this. This is a new beginning for us, and we've got so much confidence in this. We're going to, you know, I don't know how long the party went on for. I've read um, in different books that these parties could go on for days and days. I don't know what they did. I don't know what they celebrated, but they went all in with this new beginning. I reckon most of us looking around the room, looking back at me, we all at some point in our life would crave a chance to start again chance to have some kind of new beginnings. But with all this stuff, whenever I don't know if you've ever thought about this, come New Year, come summer holiday, something like that, the fresh start, we always just temper it a bit because we always think, oh, it's just me. I don't know if I'll be able to get it. I don't know if I'll be able to go all in. I don't know if I'll be able to commit to it because it's us, because we know what we're like. Can we go all in with the fresh starts? Can we wake up tomorrow morning and think, I can, I can start again. I can do the things that I've been put on this planet to do. Can we do that? Can you do that? If, if you, if we think that we win the battles, then my answer to you would be no, we can't. If Israel thought in this moment that they had won this battle, if they thought that it was them, I would say they would never, they might have had a good night, but they wouldn't have gone to Gilgal. They wouldn't have gone all in. They wouldn't have made um, Saul king in front of God. They wouldn't have done that. They went all in because they recognized under Saul's governorship and leadership that God had won this battle. If you're living your life like God is fighting your battles and winning your battles, then I'm telling you now, fresh starts are possible. I'm encouraging you. If you know God in that way, then we can go all in. We can pray those prayers. We can expect that. This, this is what our faith is all about. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to make things new. He came, he came, he came that we might be born again. He came to give us that capacity that we might start again.
but not if we think not if we think that we win but if we come to know that he does what sage bit of wisdom would you need to grasp to really flourish in this life sage bit of wisdom is the real strength and rescue that you need is him to break out of bitterness to get out of cycles of hate or to be able to cope with a world in which there is cycles of hate or to be able to start again. The real strength and rescue that that you need is in him.